Y'all can't copyright no beats, man. Hey, Rockers. Welcome back. It's Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinckley, sitting here with the Peter Gabriel to my Manukache, <laughs> the leader of the band, Matt Black. How you doing, everybody? Nice to... Well, I can't see you, but nice to see you in a different way. <laughs> nice to see you, air quotes. Air quotes. Big air quotes. <laughs> All right, man. What are you wearing today? Today I'm wearing my Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon t-shirt. Thank you, Target. Ten bucks. Nice and faded. (laughs) They sell it that way. They sell it that way. (laughs) But I have worn it many times. All right, man. I'm sporting my U2 shirt from the 2009 360 tour because it's the oldest U2 shirt that I still have that didn't get worn out and just absolutely fall apart. And I think you'll see why a little later. All right, man. What are we doing today? Well, this one evolved. We started out with the concept of best duets. And then you thought, and then That's I said, "Well, big enough. enough. Yeah, we can't do, do just duets. What about three? What about four? So wait, I wait, think, wait. What is it called when you have three? A, a trio. trio, but it's not a trio because the trio re- refers to the comps. Anyway, let's let we'll, <laughs> we ended up with this as best we can define it: best songs with more than one lead singer. Yes. What were your criteria for your top five well, best multi-lead <laughs> vocalist songs? Well, Seth, I'm glad you asked. First of all, I really made a distinction between lead vocals and backing vocals. So there yeah. are some songs with brilliant backing vocals. Yes. But to me, a lead vocalist has to have at least a section of the song by itself. The vocalist has to be singing by him or herself. Like, and, a, like a verse or a chorus. Yeah, any section. And or, or and or a harmony where everyone is singing the same amount. In other words, okay. not just certain sections are harmonized. So I really went with songs. The distinction is sometimes hard to pin down, but I, I really went with songs where there is a multiple lead vocal, not just a lead with a very strong backing. Right. I did the same thing. Did you have any other criteria? I did not. Mine was I had to really like both of the singers mm-hmm. and they had to play off of each other really well. Well, I would have so had, was, I'd have to knock off a couple of mine if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was, and I'm sure this is on your list too, that I really, really, really like the song as well. Of course. That's why it's a top five. There you go. Goes without saying. All right. I can't remember who went first. I can't either. So why don't you start? Okay. All right. Well, I'm wearing the Pink Floyd t-shirt. And, is, is it Pink yeah. Floyd out of the gate at number five? Pink Floyd out of the gate at number five. Nice. I'm going to go with Comfortably Numb. Great and choice. Co- Pink Floyd is one of many bands that have multiple lead vocalists. Roger Waters, who's got that frankly annoying nasal voice, and David <laughs> Gilmore, whose voice I love. Yeah. And in some, sometimes I wish that he sang all the vocals because I think he's such a better singer. But Roger Waters' voice has a lot of character. It's yes. very distinct. And in a song like Comfortably Numb, where it's basically a, I wouldn't say a conversation, but it's, it's a- It's two different narratives. It's two different people. It's two different yeah. people who are, who are speaking or sharing their thoughts. And you've got Roger Waters playing the, you know, whether it's the corrupt record executive or the doctor or whatever, the, you right. know, the, yeah. the, the person who's tending to Pink, giving him the medication that he needs to go out on stage, but it's going to ruin his life ultimately. And then David Gilmore, who's lost and maybe- in a way in touch with the child inside of him and the experiences, the two voices inhabit the characters so perfectly and set the scene so perfectly for the narrative in the song. I don't think you can do any better than that for a two vocal. Well, you can. There's four songs that can do better than that. There's four songs (laughs) that can do better than that. But yes, I think it's a brilliant example of Pink Floyd using the two voices to their best advantage. My number five is It's Only Love by Brian Adams with Tina Turner. It's on my honorable mentions. Before you go on, we should have done it first. Over Under? 
under on the number. I'm going to put it at one. Put it, the over under is. I'm one. putting it over. You can take the over the under. Ooh, I don't know. I might have to go on the under because I don't All know right, if you're going to pick I, some of this. I, 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 I'm going to go push because I think we're going to have one at least one. Well, anyway, go back to it's only love. Which it's I lo- only which love. I love. Yeah, yeah, such a great song. Brian and Tina trade verses on this one and they share the chorus. Brian's a decent vocalist. He's a good rock and roll vocalist. I wouldn't put him in the top echelon of singers. But Tina's powerful performance takes this song to another level. And it's got great guitar work by Keith Scott, who's one of the most underrated rhythm rock lead guitarists out there. This song was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance by a duo or group with vocal. Could you get a longer description <laughs> of, a, of, of a category? And the accompanying video won an MTV Video Music Award for Best Stage Performance. And Brian Adams says that this is his most memorable collaborations of all the ones that he's done. I, I love the vocals on this song. I love the way that they play off of each other with the male and the female part of the song. Both of their voices go really well together and I think that is really what makes this song go great choice that's my yeah. number five honorable mention for me what's your number four my number four I think you might need to get the bell ready but let's see my number four is In the End by Linkin Park no no bells no oh, bells I thought you were going to have that one it's a good choice yeah, yeah thank you thank you Linkin Park is one of those bands that has multiple vocalists to put it in simple terms Mike Shinoda is a rapper and Chester right. Bennington is a singer it doesn't always fall exactly that way right um, you could have chosen almost any Linkin Park song because they tend to arrange the songs that way but I think in the end does the best job of again showing both of their talents to their greatest advantage and equally there's a lot of interpretation of what the song is but it's about pain and futility and frustration and lots of things that are usual topics for Linkin Park yeah I like a lot of their songs exactly and I don't want to go too much into it because there's not I don't think there's anything significant about the meaning of the song compared to other Linkin Park songs but I think there's a lot significant about the music it's got this great piano hook that goes pretty much throughout and the driving beat is just great the vocal performances, though, are really what take it over the top by both yeah. artists. So, yeah. in the end, by Linkin Park. Both Shinoda and Bennington do a great job on that song. For sure. This is the one we might need to get the bell out for. <laughs> no, no, I already used I already <clears throat> used both of the two that I just used were the two I thought you had a good chance to oh, have. Oh, really? So, let's see, let's see. This is the one that I think you might have picked. Stop Dragging My Heart Around by Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Honorable mention. Honorable mention. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. almost the bell. This song was written by Tom Petty and Mike Campbell as a Heartbreaker song. And Jimmy Iovine, the producer, who was also working for Stevie Nicks at the time, arranged for her to sing on it. Petty sings with Nicks on this song in the chorus and the bridge, while the entire band, save and except for Ron Blair, who was replaced by Donald Duck Dunn, played on the song. Mike Campbell explains the song's origins. He says, Stop Dragging My Heart Around was a song that I had written the music and Tom had written the words. The Heartbreakers had recorded a version of it with Jimmy Iovine as the producer. And Jimmy, being the entrepreneur that he was, was working with Stevie Nicks. And I guess he asked Tom if she could try it. And it just developed from there. We cut the track as a Heartbreakers record. And when she decided to do it, we used that track and she came in and sang over it. It became a duet. It's basically all the heartbreakers on that record. So the song was originally recorded for Petty's album, Hard Promises, but the producers felt the song really came from a female point of view, and it was left unreleased until it was agreed that they would put it on Stevie's Belladonna album. Great vocal performance by both of them. However it came to be. Just an amazing song. The recording of that was done so well. Jimmy Iovine produced that record, 
and the sounds on it are amazing. The drum sounds, the guitars, the vocals, everything just sounds crisp and clear. And it's amazing that they did that when they did it on tape. The vocal line that Tom sings in the pre-chorus, uh, or maybe it's the chorus itself, I guess it's the chorus itself, is very bizarre. If you get a yeah. chance to listen to the isolated track on YouTube, it's a very strange harmony, but it works beautifully. And just a little bit of subtext, we've talked about this on the show before, Stevie Nicks wanted to be in the Heartbreakers. Right, yeah, and, she did. You know, they, they loved they it, but they, like, didn't, they didn't want to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're, a, they, we're a guy band. Yeah, but their collaboration was was significant, including, on, I think, the song is the peak of it. So, yes. Great yes. choice. All right, what's your number three? My number three is most, in fact, four out of the five of my songs are by bands that were known for having multiple lead singers already. Right. And this might be maybe the best example of using all the lead singers at once that I can come up with. Okay. And it's Helplessly Hoping by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh, yeah. It is a beautiful harmony throughout. Pretty much every singer sings every word. There's an exception in the chorus, but it's an intentional exception. Yeah. It's a beautiful song. It expresses the confusion, maybe, is a good word, or the, the uncertainty of being in a relationship but really not knowing what's going on or what the other person's thinking and the two people in the relationship who can't quite connect and yeah. yet they feel deeply about each other. One of the really cool things is how they build the chorus, as I referred to. Well, by the way, first of all, I should say the song is only the three voices, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right. and Stephen Stills' guitar. There's nothing else on the song. And they had a lot of songs where they all sang with hard drive and rock behind them, too. Yeah. They were not just this, but this is a beautiful example. Anyway, in the choruses, they build the choruses with... I'm pretty sure it's Stephen Stills sings the first line, then Crosby and Stills together sing the second line, then Crosby, Stills, and Nash together sing the, right, sing the third yeah. line, and then they all sing the fourth line. But there's some really cool wordplay in the chorus. So the first line of, of the both choruses, they are one person. Right. The second is, they are two alone. But if you look at the liner notes, one of the choruses, it's spelled two, T-W-O, and the right. other is spelled two, T-O-O. Yeah. So they are two alone. They are three together. But if you listen carefully, the second time it's they are free together, F-R-E-E, not T-H-R-E-E. Right. They are for each other. Once a time it's spelled F-O-U-R, one time it's spelled F-O-R. So yeah. it's really a beautifully done composition, a perfectly polished jewel of a song with beautiful harmonies by all three singers, once again, showing off their best talents. Helplessly Hoping by CSN. Good choice. And why once in a while. What's your number three? Number three. Okay. Number three used to be my favorite U2 song because I would play it over and over again. I think I played it so much that it went out of being my favorite U2 song, which was <laughs> saying something. It's When Love Comes to Town by U2 and B.B. King. Great choice. It's on the Rattle and Hum record from 1988, and it was recorded at the famous Sun Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. Bono sings the first few verses and B.B. sings the chorus. And both have more than enough soul for this powerful anthem about love. But then B.B. sings the last verse about the crucifixion as everything except Larry Mullen Jr.'s kick drum drops out when he goes through this phrase. I drew the knife when they pierced his side, but I've seen love conquer the great divide. Now, there's something that a lot of people don't know. This song actually originally featured an extra verse, which is as follows. When I woke up, I was sleeping on the street. I felt the world was dancing, and I was dirt beneath their feet. When I woke up, I saw the devil looking down. But my Lord, he played guitar the day that love came to town. No. That verse was actually sung during the song's live premiere in a concert in Fort Worth, Texas on the Joshua Tree Tour. And it doesn't appear in the studio version or any of the subsequent live performances, so they only sang that once. 
<laughs> they wouldn't play the song for years after the show on the 28th of August in 1993 in Dublin, although B.B. King continued to play the song at his live shows until he passed. After King died on May 14th of 2015, U2 paid tribute to him during a show in Vancouver the following night during the Innocence and Experience tour by playing When Love Comes to Town for the first time in 23 years. Cool. Yeah, I think they've only played it two or three times since. Ready for my number two? Ready for your number two. Let's I'm gonna, go. I'm going to blow your mind. Okay. Just because no one sees this coming. <laughs> my number two is Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Oh. You know I'm not a Stones fan. I would have put that on my list, yeah. save and accept that I kind of put the the secondary female part. What's the woman's name? Mary Clayton. Mary Clayton. I kind of put that as a backup it's vocalist. It's not, because, I, because I, I I'll know. tell you why. So, okay. <laughs> first of all, I'm not. you know I'm not a Stones fan, but I, I do love this song. And the Stones actually do have multiple lead singers that most people don't realize. Keith Richards does sing lead Keith from time Richards to time. Keith Richards sings lead <clears throat> on Happy. But let's face it. He's not a great singer. No, he's I not. I don't think Mick Jagger's a great singer either, but that's a, that's a topic for a different day. But on Gimme Shelter, Gimme Shelter is just a perfect storm for me. Get yes. The, get the pun? Get the yes. pun? <laughs> See what I did there? Mary Clayton is, was a well-known backing vocalist, and this was an era where rock bands tended to work in the middle of the night. You know, like yeah. the, the Beatles started that trend by showing up at the studio at 11 at night and going home at 7 in the morning. But anyway, the Stones are working on the song, and some producer says, you know what, this really needs a, a female vocalist. They call Mary Clayton at midnight. She's four months pregnant. She gets out of bed. She drives down to the studio. She turns into this performance, I think in two takes. I believe it was two takes. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I've got that right, but... You actually can hear Mick Jagger on, on the mix going, whoa, or something like that. Yeah. Or really am amazed by her performance. Uh, and then she goes home and goes back to bed. And actually, she had a miscarriage, which she attributed to the exertion of singing this, right. like the, the expression of, uh, of singing this part. But it's definitely a lead part. They do harmonize on certain lines in the verse and in the chorus, but she sings the bridge by herself. Mick doesn't sing on the bridge. Yeah. And I, I posit that if you re-record that song, uh, maybe there is a recording that exists someplace with Mick singing on the bridge. Without Mary, it's not the same song. Not it doesn't even close. have the same power. It is her rage and yeah. like it's a song about current events, war and famine and all kinds of terrible things happening in the world. Not that specific, but this is during the Vietnam era and this is probably what was going on in, in their minds when they wrote it. But in any case, Mick just doesn't express that as well as she does. And the combination of their two voices, it's the perfect storm. That's all yeah. I'll say about it. Give me shelter by the Rolling Stones. I think that maybe her experience as being an African-American woman in the U.S. at that point in time, and she had the ability to just let that out. Wow. All right, man. Number two for me is Hunger Strike by Temple of the Dog. This one's on the self-titled album by the supergroup with members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam in it. Chris Cornell wrote the song, but was having trouble with some of the vocal parts while the band was practicing the tune. So Eddie Vedder stepped in and sang part of the song. Cornell said he sang half of that song, not even knowing that I'd wanted the part to be there. And he sang it exactly the way I was thinking about it, just instinctively. He said, Eddie was sitting there as I was singing parts and he kind of humbly walked up to the mic and started singing the low parts for me because he saw it was kind of hard. We got through a couple of courses of him doing that. And suddenly the light bulb came on in my head. This guy's voice is amazing for these low parts. Eddie Vedder said about two-thirds of the way through the song, Chris was having to cut off the one line and start the other. I'm not now and certainly wasn't then self-assured or cocky, but I could hear what he was trying to do, so I walked up to the mic, which I'm really surprised I did, and sang the other part, going hungry, going hungry. 
The next time I was up, he asked if I'd record it. I was trying to think about how to describe this, and I came across a quote from David Fricke of Rolling Stone. And he said, Cornell and Vetter turned this four minutes into a veritable opera of rock star guilt. Cornell turns on the Robert Plant-style napalm full blast, and it's Vetter's scorched introspection that brings the conscience in the song to a full boil. Hunger Strike was his first starring vocal on record, and it's still one of his best. And I would have to agree with that. One of my favorites, and I love hearing these two guys sing together. Legendary. Yeah. All right, dude. Top of the list. Ready for my number one. Ready for it. Another another band with multiple lead vocalists, and uh, my my number one is The Weight by the band. Yes. And, <laughs> um, there are multiple people who have put yeah. this song out that have done a really good job with it, but you can't well, the top original, the band. The original you can't top the, the original. Yeah, the original is 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 perfect. First of all, if you don't know the song, it's a five verse song that tells the story. Well, a story. I, I'm not, I can't define the story too well for reasons that I'll get into in a second. But it's the encounters with the characters. Each verse is a different part of a situation. Basically, maybe one day in the life of someone who shows up in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, chosen because that's where the Martin Guitar Factory is, right. or was at the time, and describing these crazy characters he encounters. Two things. First of all, the song was actually inspired by the movies of Spanish filmmaker Luis Buñuel. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. But uh, Richard Manuel was a big fan of Buñuel, and he wanted to write something like that. He was the not the only songwriter, but the, he, most of the contribution came from from him and from well from the other band members. But there's a right. percentage that kind of gets into there. But we'll get there later. Every character in the song. So you got Crazy Chester, you got Carmen and the Devil, yeah. you got Fanny and Annie, uh, Anna Lee. They're different characters, but sometimes people hear them as the same person. They're all real people that the members of the band knew and contributed stories about when they were coming together with the song. There is some dispute over the authorship, who wrote which parts, but generally it's acknowledged that a bunch of different people had a hand in writing it, including Levon Helm, Richard Manuel, and Rick Danko, who are also the three singers on the song. Helm sings three of the verses by himself, Danko sings one, and two of them sing the last verse, and Manuel sings in the choruses, which is a three-part harmony. It's just a great song to sing just a couple notes first of all i really enjoy performing this song with friends and uh you know i have i have certain friends where we know which verses are ours and we just do it that way every time and it's really fun to get the the lines on the chorus right it's a little tricky actually but it's really nice to do and the other thing is too one of my favorite parts of I've referred to it many times, the documentary It Might Get Loud about the electric guitar. Right. One of my favorite parts is over the closing credits, Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge are sitting around singing the song together. Yeah, they are. And the, my favorite part is at one point they realize they have a chord wrong. Like, even these guys are wrong. <laughs> and Edge goes, wait a minute, that's not a D, that's a B minor. And they switch, to, they change the chords. Like, oh yeah, that's what the problem is. Anyway, love the song. I could have gone some different ways with it, but this is my favorite multi-vocalist song. Very good What's choice. your number one, Seth? My number one is by two people that I think are really awesome powerhouse singers. But there's two versions of it, each with a different vocalist for this one artist. The song is Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel. Love it. The recorded version is with Kate Bush, and the live version is with Paula Cole. Both of these versions are amazing. This is off of So from 1986, which if you've been listening to this podcast since its (laughs) inception, you'll know that that's one of my all-killer, no-filler records. And this song is a conversation between what I'm going to assume is a husband and a wife about the difficult situation of a husband who can't find work and a very supportive wife who loves him and encourages him to don't give up. 
Peter's vocals express the stress of being unemployed, while Kate's vocals, imploring him to keep going, are filled with emotion, love, hope, and encouragement. And the live version on Secret World Live, though different, is just as good as the original, with an awesome performance by Paula Cole, who was a backup singer on the tour. The song was inspired by the Depression-era photographs of Dorothea Lange, showing poverty-stricken Americans in Dust Bowl conditions. Peter Gabriel saw her images in a 1973 book called In This Proud Land. He thought that a song based on this was wholly appropriate to difficult economic conditions in England under the rule of Margaret Thatcher as the prime minister. Gabriel originally wrote the song from a reference point of American roots music, and he had approached country singer Dolly Parton to sing it with him. <laughs> However, Dolly Parton turned him down, and thus Kate Bush took her place. Uh, I'm glad it worked out that way. Yeah, I would love to have heard Dolly sing with Peter on this song into where the American yeah, but, Roots version of it was. But yeah. he, I think he went a totally different direction when he had to sing with Kate Bush. Here's another fact that I've found about this. Elton John actually attributes his sobriety to this song. Wow. In particular, the lyrics from Bush. Rest your head. You worry too much. It's going to be all right. When times get rough, you can fall back on us. Don't give up. He said that Kate Bush played a big part in my rebirth. That record helped me so much. <laughs> With all that going for it, plus it's got two versions that are both amazing. Listen to both of them. Great choice. Yeah. Really, really great vocal performance by all three of them, I should say. Great. All right, man. Honorable mentions. Honorable oh, mentions. Boy. Saddle up. And uh, Matt's got a list as long <laughs> as both of my arms. I'll try to get through it quick. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, you just told me before we started recording that you have to mix the podcast differently when I get to talking about the Beatles. Because <laughs> I get excited. Matt gets a little giddy when he talks yeah. about the Beatles. I, I really struggled to not include a Beatles track on this top five. I do, most of my top fives do seem to have a Beatles track on them. Again, three or really four lead vocalists. Ringo sang yeah. a few and, and sang them really well in his way. The Beatles were all great, such great singers. I'm sorry, here I am. I'm getting all mad. Getting, 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 getting I'm mixing up here. I'm mixing up. I'm messing up your, your mix here. But uh, I'll just, <laughs> if I fell, as an amazing example of the way their voices blended, okay. uh, I know this is just an honorable mention, but I just want to say this. A lot of people break down these parts because this was before there were de detailed notes and 128 tracks and you could break down every part. Yeah. People try to listen to these things with earphones. They try to go back to the original recordings. It's often hard to tell because Paul McCartney was really good at imitating John Lennon's voice. Yeah. And this is one of the examples where you're like, is that Paul or John? I can't really tell because Paul's singing like John. Also, just their counter melodies are brilliant and completely intuitive. They had no training in how to do this. Right. Five songs that appeared on previous top five, six songs that appeared on my top five list before, so I didn't reuse them if I had a million dollars by Bare Naked Ladies. Good one. Kid Fears by Indigo Girls. Yes. Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. Another the Chain awesome one. by Fleetwood Mac. Yep. Fairy Tale of New York by The Pogues and with Christy McCall singing the female part and right. Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. A couple other quick honorable mentions. I You already used Stop Dragging My Heart Around and It's Only Love, so I won't say more about that. You mentioned Elton John, so Don't Go Breaking My Heart with Kiki with D. With Kiki D, yep. yeah. Love Shack by the B-52s, which often they awesome. arrange the song so there's one lead singer and either a, a harmonized or another part, but this one really every all the three right, singers are yeah. fully involved. Bob O'Reilly by The Who. I'm not a huge fan of Pete Townsend's voice. He does sing on a lot of Who songs, but in this song, it's, it's like Comfortably Numb. 
what he sings is right for his voice and yeah. it wouldn't have worked with Roger Daltrey's voice. Yeah. I think it's a fairly obvious pick, but Don't You Want Me by the Human League. That's just a Good nod one. to my 80s roots. And Sunshine of Your Love by Cream, except that it's really hard to distinguish the two vocalists. They sound a lot alike. Um, yeah, Jack Bruce and Eric Clapton do yeah. sound a lot alike, but they, they, they do a really good job on that song. I'm just going to quickly do a whip around some bands that are okay. notable for having multiple lead vocalists, but I didn't think there was one example that cracked the top five. Beastie Boys, The Clash, The Eagles, where every single member of The Eagles has at least one lead vocal in their catalog. Yeah. Every single one. Fleetwood Mac, obviously. Oh, I already mentioned the, the chain. The Grateful Dead, yep. Drive-By Truckers. The Beach Boys and the Traveling Wilburys, and obviously there are many more. That's as yeah. fast as I can make my honorable mentions go. <laughs> I kind of tried to keep my honorable mentions short, so and I just stuck with songs for this one. Good Times by NXS and Jimmy Barnes. I mean, Michael Hutchins and Jimmy Barnes trade off in this one, and they're both powerhouse performances by each singer. Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. Lindsay and Christine, they merge their parts so well, it's hard to tell where one stops and the other begins. You got to listen really hard for that. I'm even bringing up The Who for, I think this is the first time I've brought The Who up. You had Behind Blue Eyes in there. Maybe Behind Blue Eyes would have been one, but I'm going to go with Bargain on this one because Roger's power during the majority of the song is just amazing. But Pete's intimate vocals during the bridge are such a great contrast. And it's my second favorite who song behind, behind blue eyes feeling that way or anytime by journey. Those are two songs that you should always play together kids. So feeling that way and roll it into anytime. Uh, who's the other singer there? Greg Raleigh, the keyboardist, oh, no is actually the majority singer on both of those songs. He does a great job, and he'd be more than enough for any other band. Pre-Jonathan King? Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah. But when you add in Steve Perry, these songs become extraordinary journey tracks. And then, gotta go with Under Pressure, Queen and David Bowie. Just classic on both parts. We're done. <laughs> we made it. If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, there is a Spotify playlist that you can find in the show notes that has them all. Hey kids, we're back and we're going to open up Seth's legal brain again (laughs) for another look into plagiarism issues with one of the topics I find the most interesting and that is, and you all know it, Stairway to Heaven. Uh, I won't say any more right now. Let's have Seth take it away. (laughs) We're going to go back to law school here for a little bit. So Led Zeppelin got sued for copyright infringement in 2014 over claims that they had stolen Stairway's 1971 opening acoustic guitar part from Taurus, which was a song released in 1968 by an American band called Spirit. The amount in controversy was about $3.4 million, which the song was estimated to have earned in that five-year period that was at issue in the case. The beef over the whole thing is the intro to Stairway, stealing from the initial guitar part of Taurus. Musically, these are both line cliches, and a line cliche is a chromatic line that leads between the chords of the song. Thanks, Rick Beato, for teaching me that. Okay, go Uh, Rick. (laughs) And since both songs are in the key of A minor, they would use the same chords, right? Other songs like My Funny Valentine or A Sentimental Mood by Duke Ellington from 1935 use the same type of line cliche as both Taurus and Stairway to Heaven. Uh, There's a lot of songs that were released before 1968 that use the same line cliche. Here's the important legal point that we got to remember, kids. Since this is about a work that was completed before January 1st, 1978, 
The Copyright Act of 1909 is the only law that applies in the U.S., and it didn't provide for copyright protection for sound recordings. If you'll remember when we talked about the Blurred Lines case, it's all about the notes on the page, and that's all this case is about. Right. Here's the legal issue that was before the trial court. So to prevail on a copyright infringement claim, a plaintiff must show that, one, he or she owns the copyright in the infringed work, and two, that the defendant copied the protected elements of the copyrighted work. Absent direct evidence of copying, proof of infringement involves fact-based showings that the defendant had access to the plaintiff's work and that the two works are substantially similar. And access and substantial similarity are inextricably linked. We adhere to the inverse ratio rule, which operates like a sliding scale. The greater the showing of access, the lesser the showing of substantial similarity is required. (laughs) That was the law in the Blurred Lines case. That comes into question in this case. So let's go through the facts a little bit. In December of 1967, Randy Wolf, under the pseudonym of Randy California, filed a single page of music, which was the deposit copy, with the U.S. Copyright Office. It had 124 notes on it, and that served to register the copyright of Taurus, which is a 2 minute and 38 second instrumental track on Spirit's first record. At the trial in 2014... Jimmy Page testified that he wrote the music for Stairway and that Robert Plant wrote the lyrics and that both were original. The copyright infringement suit was filed by Michael Skidmore as a co-trustee for the Randy Craig Wolf Trust. Wolf, obviously, was the guy who wrote the song for Spirit. He was also the lead singer of Spirit. So Wolf's Trust argued that Led Zeppelin had access to Spirit's song after Robert Plant saw them play it at a club in Birmingham in 1970 a year before Stairway to Heaven was released on Led Zeppelin 4 in 71. At trial, Spirit's bass player, Mark Andes, testified that he saw Plant at the show and hung out with him afterwards. They even played a game of snooker, allegedly. (laughs) Plant stated that he didn't remember any of that, partially because he was in a bad car accident on the way home, and he testified that he suffered a head injury in that accident. Jimmy Page testified that he had been unaware of Spirit's song until people started posting about it online in the early 2010s and making the comparison to Stairway to Heaven. Quote, I knew I had never heard that before, he said. It was totally alien to me. The jury rejected Page and Plant's argument that they wouldn't have been familiar with Taurus, saying that they had access to it. However, this, like the Blurred Lines case, came down to the musicologists, the (laughs) experts. The jury found the evidence from the expert witnesses more convincing than what they found from Page and Plant. The experts who testified said that the descending line cliché shared by both songs have been a common musical device for centuries. One of the songs they cited was Chim Chim Cherie from the 1964 (laughs) Disney film Mary Poppins. The jury which concluded that the two songs were not intrinsically similar, gave Led Zeppelin the win at the trial level. But as you probably have already guessed, the lawsuit wasn't over and the appeal happened. Wolf's estate filed the appeal with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on a number of procedural issues. Now, we're going to leave all that, the, the boring legal procedural stuff, and just forward to the second appeal that ended up in front of the entire Ninth Circuit. So that's called an en banc hearing, and that means that every judge in the Ninth Circuit sat in and listened to this and chimed in on the opinion. So here's the new law from the Ninth Circuit. 
The case is entitled Skidmore, so that's the way that they refer to it. So the court in Skidmore made the new legal analysis clear that copyright does not extend to what they call common or trite musical elements. In other words, basic music building blocks cannot be copyright protected, Hmm. stuff like the line cliché. The court emphasized that the Ninth Circuit, quote, has never extended copyright protection to just a few notes. The court also recognized that assigning exclusive rights to commonplace elements firmly rooted in a genre's tradition would contradict the actual purpose of copyrights by stifling creativity. So, as Flavor Flav once knowingly said, y'all can't copyright no beats, man. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the court. They not only identified specific examples of unprotected building blocks, such as a sequence of three notes and portions of musical scales, but precluded the use of a selection and arrangement of public domain elements theory when the public domain elements are only present and not arranged in a cohesive and original way. The court also overturned the long controversial copyright law known copyright law concept, sorry, known as the inverse ratio rule. Since the advent of the internet, it's very easy to say or even prove that the alleged infringer had access to the copyright recording. And access alone has never been enough to win a copyright case. The Ninth Circuit made it clear that the copyright owners must do more to show substantial similarity between the original work and the allegedly infringing one. This part of the ruling is in line with the majority of the other courts of appeal in the United States, so the Ninth Circuit is now going along with the majority. The case got finalized in 2020 because the U.S. Supreme Court refused to grant what they call a writ of certiorari, which means they're not going to listen to the case. So this is now good law in the Ninth Circuit. It remains to be seen if any of the other minority circuits are going to follow this ruling. But since the Ninth Circuit covers the state of California, and that's where a large percentage of these suits arise because of many record companies being based in L.A., it does cover a very large legal area. So the law is a little different. Mm. And using things like line cliches and three notes in a row are allegedly not going to get you in trouble in the United States anymore for copyright infringement. Interesting. Yeah. Could open up a lot of things in a weird way. (laughs) In a good way. They're trying not to stifle creativity. I'm thinking of sampling, but I guess that's different. Sampling is different because that goes to the later Copyright Act that went into Uh, effect January 1st, 78, because that's the actual recording. Remember, we are only, in these cases, we're only dealing with notes on a page because there's two types of copyright. So when you go to the actual copyright of the recording, Hmm. when you sample that recording, you are violating the record copyright of the actual recording. That's the distinction between the two. Cool. Now, I never saw this addressed in anything I read about the case. Okay. And you didn't mention it, so I don't know if it ever came up in the case, but I have seen it addressed many times in articles about this case, just saying that there happens to also be a 17th century Baroque sonata with the same line, you call I it a line cliche. It. So, yeah. my, so I guess my, I would have asked the question, um, not having gone to law school, <laughs> <laughs> if Spirit ever really had the copyright in the first place, because that block or that that theme was in the public domain, having been around for three hundred years already. Well, they would have the copyright in the entire one hundred and twenty-four note progression. Right, but it was just however, that one there piece. is just a very very small part of that song 
that they compared to a very, very small part of Stairway to Heaven. A few seconds long. Yes. And it was that one-line cliche that they both play. And if you listen to the thing from Spirit and then you listen to the start of Stairway to Heaven, you'll see that they're very similar. But you could go back and and listen to numerous other songs. Rick Beato actually has a video on this that came out before the case was final. I want to say it was about four or five years ago. And he plays probably seven or eight songs off the top of his head that he could put to the line cliche in Stairway to Heaven, the line cliche in Taurus, and then the line cliche in the actual song. Mm -hmm. And they all sound very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And all the songs that he chooses, I believe, were recorded before Taurus filed, the copyright for Taurus was filed in 67 or 68. Interesting. Sunday, 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 March 19th at La Boule Noire, the kid band concert is going to rock your face off. Matt, tell them all about it. 18 amazing student bands, more than 50 of your favorite hits, free and open to all, live streamed around the world. Do not miss it. All right, rockers, we're back, and you know what's coming up. Matt Mm -hmm. and I are going to drop 60 seconds of knowledge on you. It's the one-minute matchup. Warming up in my corner. All right, dude, what are we doing today? Today we are doing the most annoying instrument. All right, sorry, folks. We're going to talk about stuff that's going to make you want to probably (laughs) claw your ears out, but here we go. For 60 seconds. All right, Matt, you ready? Yeah. All right, your 60 seconds on most annoying instrument starts now. Yep. Okay, the most annoying instrument in rock and roll, and it's one that doesn't show up on recordings too often, but very often in live performances, and that is the cajon. I'm looking at one right now. If you don't know it, it's a wooden box about the size of a microwave oven. It goes vertical. You sit on it. You whack the different sides with your hands and feet. There's a snare in there, so one side sounds kind of like a kick drum. One sounds kind of like a snare drum, and the other. You make different sounds if you play it different ways. It's very practical. You can put it on your back. You can carry it in the metro. I just can't stand the sound of that thing. And almost nobody can play it well. And I've even heard people who do know how to play it well. I don't like it when they play it either. It's my least favorite instrument by a mile. There's not that much more to say about it. but It's super trendy, but I just can't stand it. It does not replace a drum kit. You may as well just keep time with a shaker and a tambourine. It sounds much better to me. (laughs) 52 seconds. I can't believe you went that long on the cajon. I just, I, I, my, my visceral hatred just came out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah, I here, think I am. Here we go in three, two, one. All right. I have a few instruments that I think are really annoying, but I've got one that tops them all. Well, kind of one. We'll, we'll see here in a minute. All right, dude, the melodica for one. Just not a fan. I mean... It sounds like a kid's toy because it is one. It just, oh my gosh, uh, God, every time it comes up, even with Stevie Wonder playing the melodica, I just can't handle it. The recorder, again, it sounds like a kid's toy because it is one. <laughs> even the professional ones don't sound that great. Now, I don't know if, if, if there's a recorder in rock and roll, I'd really like to know that. The Vuvuzela. Really annoying. God, so annoying. But the absolute most annoying instrument to me is one that is not in tune. Oh, my God. Nails on a chalkboard. Just kill me now. 
one minute on the nose, maybe 101. <laughs> yeah, we have a saying around here, we tune because we love. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, we do. Interesting oh my that gosh. You, you mentioned the recorder. It wasn't a real recorder, but that wind instrument that you hear in the intro of Stairway to Heaven is meant to be a bass recorder, but it was played on a synthesizer by John Paul Jones. Ah, okay. I'm fairly certain. A bass recorder I didn't was an instrument I didn't know existed. I didn't know there was yeah. such a thing as a bass um, recorder. And I'll just say about the melodica. What? I'm, I think you have had this experience, but if you haven't heard Andy Guthrie play a melodica, well, when I, you hear it, you're, you, you, I hope your opinion, well, I guess it didn't change. My opinion about that <laughs> instrument changed a lot when I heard him. Andy Guthrie, friend of the podcast, instructor at Rock U, guitarist and singer in the Doodads, and a brilliant, brilliant melodica, melodicist? Melodica melodicist? <laughs> I got to hear it. I will keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. If Andy's going to play it for me, I will give him leeway. <laughs> So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Today's episode of Extra Credit The Rock You Podcast is sponsored by our good friends and partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble is your one-stop shop for all Anglophone music creation in Paris. Go check out what they do at www.bigpebblerecords.com. Extra Credit The Rock You Podcast is a production of Rock You. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinckley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time.